Well, good morning, New Hope. It is good to be with you. Who can tell me what is, uh, wh- what day is today? Pi Day. I heard some people. It's daylight savings, yes, but Pi Day. Be blessed by that. That is going to be great later. Uh, if we haven't met before, I, I am not senior pastor Mark Kring. That, hopefully that's obvious. Uh, he is away uh, getting some study prep done for Easter, as well as the, the next teaching he's got in so- store, the next series. Uh, my name is Kyle Denny. I am the youth pastor, and I'm also the director of finance. Literally, I told someone that this week, and they laughed at me. So I, I guess those aren't common to hold those two positions, but, but I do. Uh, and I, I have a tradition where, where I like to read the passage out in front of us. And so we're, we're going to do that shortly. If you have your Bible with you, you, you can turn to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22. Uh, if you don't have a, a Bible with you, we're going to put the verses on the screen. If you do not own a Bible, we, we would love to give you one. There's some in the Welcome Center that are free. If you are live streaming this, it, it's great to see you on live stream. Uh, you can email the office, office at nhchurch.com, and we can either set a Bible aside for you, or we would love to ship you one. And we want you guys to have the Word of God in your hand. So I'm going to stall for a little bit and get you a few extra seconds to go to Ezekiel chapter 36. Uh, and I just want to let you guys know, we're going to celebrate Pi Day in youth group today. This is my free plug for youth group. Uh, if you didn't know, we have a middle school and a high school youth group. So from 6th to 8th grade and from 9th to 12th grade. We meet middle school from 4 to 6. If you come here to celebrate Pi Day, you're on your own. We don't meet here. Uh, we meet at the, uh, the other building, our, our older building, which is now kind of our youth building is how we use it. Uh, so we meet there from 4 to 6 and also from 6.30 to 8.30 for high school. Uh, if you want to hear more about this, uh, you can either email me at kyle at nhchurch.com. You can fill out a connect card on, on your way out or you can go to our website and, and go to the contact us. Uh, the email is going to be the best way to get plugged into what we're doing with youth ministry. I, I send out a weekly email that, that kind of talks about what we have been teaching about, as well as where we're going for the semester. There's some parent resources. It, it's good. If you're at all interested, please sign up for that. All right. Ezekiel 36, verse 22 to 32, says this. Therefore... Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances." You you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people, and I will be your God. 
Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it. And I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. The word of the Lord. What are we doing in Ezekiel? Like, you can't, don't lie to me. I know you probably thought about that when you saw that passage. In general, I'm just going to make an assumption that most of us probably don't get into Ezekiel very much. The Old Testament can be foreign to us. There are things in the Old Testament that you can't help but just scratch your head about. And yet, the Old Testament is immensely important. There are timely truths about God in principles that were written down for our sake. And I want to push us to read our Old Testament more. So that's one of my reasons for choosing Ezekiel. Now, what do we do with this passage? First, some some context. That that always helps. The, The book of Ezekiel takes place at a time when everything that could go wrong was going wrong. This is hundreds of years before Jesus God had given the nation Israel, that this people that he chose, he gave them everything. He gave them good land. He gave them favor. He gave them protection. Most of all, he, he gave them himself. His name dwelled in the land. His presence was in the temple. And, and none of that was because they were some great people. It's not because they were supremely righteous that they earned it or deserved it. Rather, it was a gift God wanted them to thrive in this land, and so he gave them commands. He said, if you do these things, you're going to live. You're going to have abundance. But God also warned them, and he said, if you turn away from me, the one who is sustaining, who has done everything for you, if you turn away from me and you chase after pagan gods, if you do the horrendous things that the other nations do, like sacrificing your children to pagan idols, well, then I'm going to dry up the lands. I'm going to stop the yield of harvest. I'm going to let sickness sweep through the lands. And I'm going to let other invaders conquer the lands. They're going to take you and your families and they're going to bring you into different nations and you will be scattered. God said all of this before he brought them in the land. Literally, he brings them inside of the land and he says, these are your blessings if you do good. These are going to be the discipline and the curses if you don't. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 28 if you want. Well, Israel spirals. They go downward and downward and downward. They have a few godly leaders that that pull them up, a few godly leaders that bring revival. But ultimately, the, the nation as a whole chases after evil. Ezekiel, he's a Jewish priest who was in the second wave of being deported to a foreign nation called Babylon. It would be like if if Russia conquered us and they took all the best and brightest, most noblest minds and deported them back to Russia. Everything that could go wrong for Israel was going wrong. 
The first 24 chapters or so are, are about earthly judgment in Ezekiel. It's, it details some of the monstrosities that have occurred. And man, you can hear the outrage and the anger in the voice of God. But he also gives them a promise of a future restoration. And that's where we're going to be today. But he goes out of his way to make it very clear why he's doing it. Look at verse 22 with me again. It says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. God is very clear. He is going to act for the sake of his name. And when we read something like this, isn't there just a small whisper that seems to suggest to us that, that maybe God is selfish? Isn't that some, how some of these passages can come across? He says, I'm not doing this for your sake. I'm doing this for me. I'm doing this for my name. And I know we're in church. <laughs> we're not really allowed to say that out loud. But but can't there be like a gnawing thought in the back of your mind that, that can sometimes entertain that? I can hear the skeptic saying, when we focus on ourselves, it's selfish, but when God focuses on himself, it's suddenly just. And yet, first and foremost, at the foundation of everything, God has concern for his name. He, he wants to be known rightly. He says something like 65 times in the book of Ezekiel that then they will know that I am the Lord. When God works for his name, we get this wider window, this bigger picture into who he is. And it is unspeakably great. The passage starts off with a therefore. Ezekiel has just given a small recap of why God had to exile his people from the land. They defiled it. They ruined it with their deeds and their ways. They literally sacrificed their sons and daughters to pagan gods. They brought idols into the temple to worship. They worshiped with their backs towards the altar and worshiped the sun. They have so utterly abandoned God that earlier in Ezekiel 5, 6, God says they did more wickedness than all the other nations around them. Israel, who had the commands for life, they did worse than everyone else. They don't care at all what God has to say, the blessings he gave, the discipline or the curses he promised. They're disinterested and dead to it. And so God says, I'm about to act, but it's not for your name, Israel. It's for my name. Now we think of names in today's society a lot different than people in Ezekiel's day and age did. We use them mainly as identification marks. So in, in middle school, there were seven Kyles in my gym class. True story, I don't know why, but there were. Um, so I couldn't just go by Kyle, and I couldn't just go by Kyle D, because there were two Kyle Ds in my gym class. And so I was either known as Kyle Denny, or as Denny, or, or some nickname that, that plays off that. So when the, the teacher wanted to get my attention, he said, Kyle Denny, come on over here. In the ancient world, though, a name often carried more weight than just an identification mark. It, it was tied in with character. So for instance, to know a person by name was not just to identify them, not, not just a Kyle Denny come here, not to point them out in a crowd, 
but to know that person's character and nature. Look at this verse in Acts with me. It says in Acts 2.21, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, now there's something different about the way a name is used here. This is not some magical incantation where if you say the right words with the right pitch in the right way, then bam, you have power over it. It's not what this is saying. It's not just saying that repeating the name Jesus is important. It's not saying that your prayers are more holy because you say Jesus more. Might be nice, but that's not what it's saying. We're saved by grace through faith. You can't call upon the name of the Lord without knowing him, without having relationship with him. And so who God is, what he is like, is bound up with his name. Did you catch that? Who God is, what he is like, how he's understood, is bound up with his name. In the Old Testament, it says that his name can be praised, it can be feared, it can be loved, it can be waited on, it can be walked in. God establishes his name as a dwelling place for Israel where they can be with God. But that means that God's name can also be blasphemed. It can be polluted and it can be profaned, as is the case here with Ezekiel. Who God is, what he is like, has been slandered by Israel. Have you ever been slandered before? It hurts more when it's someone close to you or someone that you have done everything for. God has done everything for Israel. And this is really a twofold problem. First, God has tied his name to this people and to this land. So their actions reflect him. The way they seek after corruption reflects who God is to the other nations. They're going to watch it, and they're going to get the wrong idea. Israel has made a mockery of who God is. The nations that don't have God were behaving better than Israel. But it gets worse. While the actions of Israel speak wrongly about God, the second thing is that the discipline of the nation will be misunderstood too. He's going to let Israel be conquered and exiled. And there's going to be a lot of death because of the evil things that Israel has done. The other nations are are going to watch that and they're going to draw the wrong conclusions from it. They're going to see God as either abandoning his people or being too weak to protect them from lesser gods. He, He is either going to be known as someone who abandons his promises, breaks his promises, or is lesser than idols of the land. This is the problem. God's holy name is trampled on. It's mangled. It's deformed. It's belittled. And so when God says, it's not for your sake that I'm about to act, Israel, it it doesn't mean that it's not for their benefit, as we're about to see. Rather, it carries the weight that they don't deserve it. The house of Israel, they're not above destruction. They're they're not some glorious creation that God can't uh, bear to issue his wrath and annihilate them. It's that in foreknowledge, God chose to tie his name to Israel. He's going to display 
who he is based on his treatment of Israel. And when God pursues his name, we get this wider window, this greater picture into who he is. And it is unspeakably great. The, the most important thing about you, it, it's not what you do in life. It's not your career. It's not how many TikTok followers or Instagram followers you have. It's not your bachelor's. It's not your master's. It's not your PhD. It's not how good of a son or daughter or father, mother you are. The single most important thing about you is your relationship to the holy God. How you understand and how you interact with him. It's what you were created for, to savor and enjoy God. When something gets in the way of that, when something mangles how God is known, he's going to act. Look at verse 23. It says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. And you get this back and forth between two opposite words. You have holy and you have profane. They're both mentioned in the prior verse too. Holy is to be set apart, to be withheld from ordinary use with divine emphasis, for divine purposes. And it's treated with special care. God is the greatest picture of what holy is. He's set apart from everything. He is creator, everything else, creation. No one is like God. He's the self-existing one. He doesn't need water. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need sleep. He creates everything out of nothing. How does that work? And furthermore, he's ultimately and intensely pure. He is ultimate goodness. He can't tolerate sin in his presence. He is holy. He is other. And as such, there needs to be a special care there. When God appears to Moses, he appears to him in this burning bush. And he tells Moses, don't come any closer and take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. There is special care there when you're dealing with things that are holy. Likewise, when we look at God's temple, there were different levels of access. The closer you got to the Holy of Holies, the the room that held the Ark of the Covenant, the more limited the access. Like You couldn't just walk in there and and take a look around, you know, peel back the curtain and, and see what's in there. They weren't doing Sunday school tours of it. I guess it's probably Saturday school tours in that day and age. But regardless, once a year, one person, the high priest, would go through extra purification ceremonies to enter in the room and offer atonement for his sin as well as the sin of the nation. There's special care when interacting with things that are holy. And tradition has it that before entering... One of the priests in one of the different levels would tie a rope around the high priest's leg. That way, when he went into the Holy of Holies, if he did something wrong, 
and was killed by the intensity of it, they wouldn't have to go in after him to get the body. They could pull his body out. Like, like there's a special care when interacting with things that are holy. That special care, it's been lost with Israel. God says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. I will prove myself holy because you, Israel, you've acted otherwise. You have profaned my great name. Remember, profaned is the contrast to holy. It means to defile something that has been set apart as pure or holy. There's a contempt. There's an intentionality with it. You're not treating this holy object, person or thing, with special care. Rather, you're treating it as common, as ordinary. It's suffering harm or dishonor because you're treating it as common. I want you to imagine that you have a love letter from someone near and dear to you. It could be a spouse, it could be a child, it could be a parent, it could be a friend, whoever. They wrote you this amazing letter and it is your last connection to them before they pass away. You have no pictures of them, you have no videos, no emails, no social media accounts with them, just this letter. And it is special to you. The way that you read it, you can hear their voice. When you read it, you get flashback memories of who they are. You get whiffs of their scent. It's special and unique. It makes you smile as you remember them. Now imagine you're having company over, friends over, and you show them this letter. You say, look who loved me. Look who this is. And while your back is turned, someone reads it and resolves to use it as toilet paper. You come back later to find it desecrated. They've treated it as common. Would you not be furious and angry at them for doing that? What are you going to do with that? Are you going to show that to people? It's a a very crude example. I know. But but I'm I'm trying to awaken some disgust about Israel for their actions that I don't think we see anymore. We're too far removed. You take this illustration, you take this insult, you take this outrage, and you crank it up a million times. Click, 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 click. Million times. You won't even come close to what has happened here. That letter isn't holy. It's just special. Israel didn't disregard something special like Tom Brady did with the Lombardi trophy. Israel intentionally treated God, the most holy object there is, as lowly and unworthy. They profaned God's name. They treated who he is like toilet paper. We're talking about who we were made for. The most glorious, powerful, awe-inspiring being. And rather than treating his name with special care, they drag it through the sewage. And it causes the other nations to, to wrinkle their nose at the thought of God. Look at how weak Israel's God is. These people stink. God can't have that. God is not some teddy bear God that is only soft and cuddly. No, God is patient, but he is fearsome and he is awesome. To not act would be to say that this is not a big deal. 
the most glorious, holy object in the universe has suffered harm. It's been profaned. God says, I will vindicate. I will prove that I'm holy. But not for a minute are you to think that it's because you are great, Israel. No, it's because my name is great that I'm about to act. It's because my name is great that I'm going to work through you. When God pursues his name, we get a, a wider window. We get a picture into who he is. <laughs> and it's easy to point and wag a finger at Israel. But, but we're not so far removed from that. Like, maybe not to that extent, but do you treat God as common? Uh, the other, other week, I uh, have been so invested in this show called WandaVision. Uh, if you don't watch it, it's a superhero show, whatever. You, you can think of March Madness or something if you want. Anyways, so vested in this that the anticipation in me is building up. And they only release one episode a week, and so it's, it's kind of good because you can't binge, but, but then you're looking forward to it. And so I would readily wake up before my kids to watch this show if it meant that I got to find out what happens next sooner. That I wouldn't have to wait for bedtime or for nap time with my kids. Contrast that, though, to my devotional time. Praying with God, reading his word, I found, to my shame, that that same week, uh, I would rather roll over in bed and sleep a little longer, get some more rest for the day, than to get up early with God. I would do my devos later in the day, but there are some days that I would wake up for a TV show and, and I, I wouldn't wake up for God. Is that not treating God as common? Treating him as ordinary. Do you treat God as common in your life? The way you think about him, the way you talk about him, the way you make time for him and prioritize him. This is a problem. <laughs> and, and listen when I say, you do not have the means to fix it on your own. When God pursues his name, we get a wider window into who he is. And it's unspeakably great. He, he doesn't destroy Israel. Like he tied his name to them. He made them a promise. And what other nation or people are still around after 3,000 years? Like not only have they gone through exile and been conquered, but they came back out and they're still a people. Is that not God preserving them? even though they treat his name like toilet paper. He gives them hope of restoration of what's to come. And God declares a three-step plan on how he's going to prove the holiness of his name. Step one is gather. It says in verse 24, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Israel's not going to cease to exist. When Ezekiel is talking to the house of Israel, they're in exile, but God's not going to abandon them, even if they deserve it. He's going to physically regather them into their own land, a land that God has promised for them. Of course, it's not enough just to regather his people. Like, what's to say that the next time is going to go any different? Earlier in the book, in chapter 20, 
Ezekiel runs through a brief recap of how Israel got to where they are. God says, I chose you, Israel, and swore to you that I would bring you into your chosen land. But you wouldn't cast away the detestable things and the idols of Egypt. But I withheld my wrath for the sake of my name. So I led you out of Egypt and I brought you into the wilderness. I gave you statutes and rules in order to live and to have life. But you rebelled against me in the wilderness. So I poured out my wrath. But instead of making a full end to you, I acted for the sake of my name. I told their children in the wilderness, do not walk in the ways of your parents, but they rebelled against me. We have a a phrase that goes something like, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Israel keeps on falling away from God. And, And that's way too generous. Israel keeps lusting after other things that take them away from God. Something needs to change. Is that you today? Are you running away from God and chasing something else down? Even if you're a believer, you can fall into this. You can prioritize something else above him. You're going to need something more than just a behavior modification to follow God. Israel's true problem, it's not a lack of information, and it's not a lack of opportunities to follow God. It's far worse than that. Just bringing them back into the land isn't enough. That They need something more. Verse 25 says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Israel needs a shower? Is that what this is? Is that what I'm hearing? Like, we don't really see sprinkling with water as much in our day and age. For Jewish people, though, it instantly would have flashed images in their head. It's like if I hum on the banks of the red cedar. If I go, it's pretty good, right? You don't have to tell me. I know it is. I'm secretly hoping uh, Michael is going to extend an invite to the uh, worship team for me. But I can't see your faces, but I assume that some of you smiled when I did that. And some of you probably grimaced because it brought up an image of MSU. That may be positive for you, or it may be negative, looking at you, U of M people. But that flashed through your head, and and for the Jewish people, when they hear sprinkle with clean water, instantly what flashes through their head is, is they think of purification requirements. God is intensely holy. When God originally created the world, he called it good. It was a place for man and woman to be in the presence of God. Then sin came into the picture, and it brought death, it brought decay, it brought pollution. And so in the Old Testament, we see that God required purification in order to be in his presence because of the brokenness of the world, because God is intensely holy, and sprinkling with water was part of that purification process. So what would have popped into Israel's head was the idea that God was going to cleanse Israel. It it says so much in that verse. But also that he was going to prepare them for a spiritual relationship with himself. Their filthiness and their idols would be washed away. They would be ready to once again be in his presence. 
Earlier in Ezekiel, in 8 to 11, we read that God's presence is removed from the temple. Doesn't come back. His presence doesn't come back to the temple. Uh, again, this is not enough, though. That They need more than to just be cleansed. For God to prove his name holy, he needs a second step. And it's transformation. Verse 26 says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Do you want new spiritual life? Do you want true change in your life? Then you're going to need something more than just a behavior modification. Israel's true problem was their heart of stone. They had made so many bad choices. They chose things over God again and again and again that they had become hardened to him. It's why they don't care about dragging his holy name through sewage. Now, we hear heart, and a lot of times, I think we just think emotions. That's not quite an accurate picture of the way the Bible uses heart. The heart in the Bible is your inner person. It's tied to your emotions and your feelings. It's not less than that. But it's also tied to your will. It's tied to your thinking, to your logic, your mindset. And so it's not this tug-of-war between your heart and your brain. Rather, it's both, and it's this underlying current that pushes them. It's your inner person. Israel has, has a heart of stone. There's a coldness, an insensitivity, a lifelessness in their inner person towards God. They don't care about God. They don't want to talk about him. They don't want to obey him. They don't want to feel anything about him. It's hardness. God says it's got to go. I can't work with that. I'm going to remove that heart of stone and I'm going to give you something alive. I'm going to give you something sensitive, responsive, something new. I'm going to give you an inner person that's going to listen and desire me. Isn't that amazing? This is part of the way that God is going to show who he is and how holy his name is. You want new spiritual life? You want true change in your life? You need a new heart. An indication that God is giving it to you is the very fact that you want it. That is a sign. Stone hearts will just write this off and move along. Hearts of flesh will be responsive. This is not just for new believers either. Like I continue to need this. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, the Apostle Paul is speaking about persecution and endurance. But he says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. If you're a believer in Christ, we continue to be renewed by God. He continues to soften our hearts, to soften our mindsets to be receptive toward him. And more glorious than this revelation about a new heart is that God is going to put his spirit in his people. Hundreds of years before Pentecost happened, God foretold that he was going to do it. And it's still yet to be done on such a grand scale with Israel. That's still to come. His spirit is our helper. It's our guide. 
He's going to put his spirit inside us to help us understand truths about God, to feel truths about God that people without his spirit won't have the capability. Both this inner person and this presence of his spirit, they're going to work together and they're going to help us follow after God. Truly, that is holy. God will have you obey him, not by just forcing your submission, but by wooing you, by showing you how beautiful of a God he is, how holy he is. Who can hold a flame to that? If you were Ezekiel looking at the house of Israel, you would see no hope for this. No sign that this is happening. This, this just seems impossible. If you want to read something cool, go back and read Ezekiel 37. It's the valley of the dry bones. It's God showing how dead the house of Israel is to him in their hearts and how it appears hopeless, but how God is going to bring life back. Do you have someone in your life that's hardened to God? Like that, They're not too far gone. God is in the heart transplant business. It's not too late for them. Nothing's impossible for our God. And this brings us to God's final step to vindicate his holy name. It's blessing. It says in verse 28, you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness and I will call for the grain and multiply it and I will bring a famine on you. I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. This is the, the cherry on top. Like they're going to be regathered into their land. God's going to reaffirm his covenant. You will be my people and I will be your God. And then he goes on to talk about the restoration that's going to take place. He says, I, I will save you from all your uncleanness. He's relating it back to the cleansing that he's going to do. And when that happens, this land is just going to open up. First, God says, I'm going to call for the grain. And the actual Hebrew expression is probably closer to summoning the grain. It's like when a general summons his troops for battle. God says, I'm going to summon this grain. It's going to come up through the dirt. It's going to peek its head up. And I will not bring famine on you. That was one of the judgments that God pronounced through Ezekiel. There won't be a shortage of food. God's going to multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field. And all of it is not because Israel has now worked so hard to earn it. It's not because they are now suddenly worthy of it. Rather, it's a sign of God's love and power on his people. When God pursues his name, we get a wider window into who he is is. The other nations, they're, they're going to see it and they're going to be struck by it. They're going to see how holy, how separate this God of Israel is. Verse 21, then you will remember, 31, you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Loathing yourselves in your own sight. What do you do with that? Like in some sense, experiencing divine grace does not suppress the loathing of ourselves. Does that make you uncomfortable? It doesn't wipe away the remembrance that we screwed up. Now, it doesn't give us a limp either. 
And that's important. It's not saying that we just walk around with our heads down saying, I screwed up, I screwed up, I screwed up, I screwed up. That's not what God means by this. Look at the Apostle Paul as an example. Apostle Paul was a man that persecuted the church. And he dragged Christians off to jail left and right. He, he, he held coats for people so that other Jewish people could grab boulders and stones and throw it at a Christian man named Stephen and, and kill him. And yet, when, when Paul repents from it, when he turns from his evil, his remembrance of his evil doesn't crush him. His remembrance of evil points to God. Look at 1 Timothy 1.15. It says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul doesn't even say, I was the foremost of sinners. He says, I am. There's some remembrance of his past life in that. <laughs> but you don't ever think of Paul as mopey. He's not like this Eeyore kind of a guy. Like, look what he says next in verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That's how it's going to be with Israel. It's not going to be this crippling hatred of yourself, but a humbling unworthiness that points back to God. That points back to Jesus. There's forgiveness and there's grace for us no matter what you've done. That is true. Romans 8.1 says there's no longer condemnation for us if you believe in Jesus. But that feeling of unworthiness, that needs to stay. Because it displays how deep God's love is for you. It shows how long-lasting his patience is for you and how holy a God is. If you remove your unworthiness, you lose some of the sense of awe with God. The passage ends with God saying, verse 32, I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. God is very clear. He's going to act for his name. At the beginning, the skeptic may say, wait, wait, wait. When we focus on ourselves, it's selfish. But when God focuses on himself, it's suddenly just. And the answer is overwhelmingly yes. God created everything for his glory. Everything displays his glory. And when God pursues his name, we get this wider picture into who he is. We get drawn in more. We see how holy he is. We get mercy. We get his love. We get pursued by him. We get a new heart. We get a new spirit. We get to savor and enjoy God for eternity. <laughs> when God works for his name, it's still for our benefits. It's not at odds. It's not because of our merit. It's not because we deserve it or we're some perfect creation. It's because it displays who God is. And we were made to recognize and have a relationship with him. It is the most important thing about you. Ultimately, God's name is seen most clearly in Jesus. 
In John 17, 6, it tells us that Jesus is the manifestation of God's name. Who God is, is seen through Jesus. It's seen in his very being, but very specifically, it's seen in his ministry. It's seen in the way he's friends with sinners. It's seen in his death and in his resurrection. That twofold problem that we started off with about how the nations would either see God as abandoning his people or being too weak to protect him, man, that will be fulfilled in days to come. God promises that. But, but don't we also see that in Jesus? God doesn't abandon his people. He sent Jesus. He sent his only son so that we could be drawn in. Jesus dies so that you can have relationship with God. And then God isn't weak. He's powerful. He, he raises Jesus from the dead. And, and one day, we will all be raised too. God's name is holy. And you, you look around the world and who else is like that? Don't you want to follow that God? Don't you want to obey him and trust him more? To know him deeper? I'm going to put this verse on the screen one last time. It's Acts 2.21. And it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, if you're not a believer yet and you want to be, don't harden your heart. Don't, don't run away from God. We have pastor or elders in the prayer room after every service, and, and they're just there that want to pray with you no matter what you're going through. Today, uh, Pastor Jeff is going to be there. But don't harden your heart. Don't push this off till next week. And we want to pray with you about anything. It doesn't matter if it's big or small. Like, let the church be the church. Please let us pray with you. Jeff will be there if you're interested. When God pursues his name, man, we, we get a wider window into who he is. And it is unspeakably great. Don't harden your hearts. Don't quench the spirit speaking inside you. Don't run from him. Don't, don't treat God as common. He is anything but common. He is the Holy One of Israel. Let me pray. Lord, truly your, your name <laughs> is too wonderful to describe with words. Uh, I have fallen terribly short of describing who you are, but, but I pray that you would still move, Lord. I pray that you would move in the hearts of your people, that you would awaken desire, <laughs> that, that we would want to come and learn more about you, that we would desire you, Lord, and most importantly, that we would reflect your name, that we would be a people that is first and foremost molded after you. I pray that you would bless New Hope in that way and the other churches in the greater Lansing area. We thank you for your son. We thank you for his sacrifice. And it's in his holy name that we pray. Amen. Enjoy Pi Day, New Hope.